Now, like the constraints thing is really interesting. Like, so I don't, I get, I get really worried sometimes. I, I worked with a coach recently. Where I was, I was running a drill, and I was like, I'm just a bit concerned that this drill I'm running is just like pure block practice. Like, it's not varied at all, you know. And but the problem is, we we had a problem to solve, which is quite a kind of it's like a, just a time and distance problem. So you hit that at a certain time on a certain mark. And I was like, I'm just a bit worried that it's a bit dull. And he goes, well, the thing is, every time you run it, it's different. The conditions are changing, the wind's shifting, water state's changing. So he goes, actually, it's really varied. It's just that you're not the person doing the varying. And actually, you're, you're a bit tied in. Welcome to episode three of the Coaching Discourse podcast, hosted by myself, Laurie McDonald, Dr. Anna Stodder, and Derek O'Reardon. Following episode one, Leadership and Culture, and episode two, Ontology and Epistemology, this episode will be dedicated to skill acquisition from the perspective of three individuals working in freestyle action sports. We're incredibly grateful to Ben Kinnear, Rhiannon Bader, and Sam Ross for gifting us their time today and agreeing to engage in the discussion around this subject. Before we ask our guests to introduce themselves, I'd like to offer a brief introduction to this episode. I recognise that by bringing in people from freestyle action sports, we've perhaps implicitly suggested that we're likely to find some common ground today between our guests. And of course, this may not be the case at all. Freestyle action sports have played and continue to play a role in my life. And as a coach developer, I've chosen to spend more time recently engaging in literature surrounding skill acquisition. And so far, I've rarely found myself listening or reading about Skillac from the action and freestyle sport domain. So from a purely selfish point of view, when our November episode topic was decided, and I offered to pull together some guests and provide a bit of direction, this was an avenue that I really wanted to explore. I hope it will be of interest to our listeners, and in terms of format for this discussion, we'll provide an opening question to get things started, but as always, this conversation is not scripted. So without further ado, Ben Kinnear, can you please kick off with an intro? Thanks, Laurie, and, and thanks to everybody else for inviting me here. Um, yeah, by means of a quick introduction, I am a snowboard coach working currently with our national team. Our, it's known as GB Snowsport, our park and pipe snowboard team. Um, I previously worked with Snowsport Scotland and in different regional or private coaching roles. Um, yeah. That's me. Okay, and thanks, Ben. Over to Sam. Thanks, sorry. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm uh, Sam Ross. Uh, I'm currently working with the uh, British sailing team, uh, women's windsurfing squad, who are now uh, foiling for 2024. And outside of that, I uh, train instructors, uh, sort of recreational windsurfers, and in all the all the different disciplines of the sport, really. Cheers, Sam. It's definitely something that I associate and love about you, and that you're embedded in. Uh, all levels of the sport, which I think no doubt adds huge value to what you do. Um, and Rhiannon. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I'm Rhiannon Bader. I work with a nonprofit organization called Skatistan that uses skateboarding and education to empower kids in Afghanistan, Cambodia, and South Africa. I am a longtime skateboarder. I have, I guess, taught skateboarding on and off since I've been 18, and my current role at Skatistan is the program manager of our Good Push Alliance, which is like a knowledge sharing network for more than 200 uh, skateboarding programs around the world that uh, work with young people. Fantastic. What a brilliant set of guests. 
Um, okay, so to kick start today, um, we have a question which I think Derek is going to offer us now. So Derek, are you happy to take on question one? I'm going to, I'm going to start and direct my question at Rhiannon first, if that's okay. And it's pretty broad. Uh, would you describe skateboarding as a sport? Uh, yeah, well, that's a really tough question. Um, I would say now I would say yes. When I was 14 or 15, I would say no. Um, I think, I think there's a kind of an old school mentality in skateboarding that it's more like, I don't know, like a lifestyle or an art form or something. But I think nowadays there's a lot more people that are seeing it as a sport as well. So I think that's something that I like about it is it's kind of like up to each person to decide what it is for them. Um, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Uh, ben? Um, it's definitely something that, that I struggled with in the past is, is, you know, similar to Rhiannon is, is imagining that it is a sport. I, I've always felt it's more. Um, but I imagine a lot of people involved in all sorts of different sports would say the same. Um, so yes, it is a sport in the sense that it's a physical activity um, that involves you know, developing a skill. Um, again, there's probably quite a strong uh, mentality within our within our sport, within our culture, that would say it's an awful lot more than that. It's a, it's a pastime. It's a way of life. Um, and I, and I do definitely hold on to that on top of it being a sport. But I would say that I am more comfortable calling it a sport now than maybe I was a few years ago. Yeah, I feel like it's a good time to put like a point break quote in. Say, no, no it's not a sport. It's the source. Uh, no, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's a weird one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Windsurfing is definitely a sport, but I suppose the reason you might question any of these as a sport is they're probably all enjoyable outside the realms of competition. Um, which I think, you know, I think a lot of things which you traditionally see as sports, they're probably not that enjoyable. Out, yeah, doing the thing is enjoyable. So I know lots of people that windsurf that just do it as a pastime, you know, as a hobby, as an activity, um, and at no point do they ever consider competition like one of the challenges we have in our pathway is actually not convincing people to do the sport it's them to do it competitively um so you know if it's so it's definitely a sport but it's also a sport outside of competition which i think is probably the same with you know snow sports and skateboarding stuff as well it, it fulfills a lot more than just a you know a fairly a, you know, a purely you know physical tick box or competition tick box I think you've kick-started with a great question and, and uh, just hearing your answers within the context of each of your sports, do you think there is a tension that exists between the lifestyle aspect of your sport and the competitive aspect? Um, I mean, again, like I said before, that lifestyle aspect versus competition aspect. So I work in, um, you know, one area working a lot now is with the British sailing team. And, you know, the windsurfing up until really recently within that looked totally different to the rest of the rest of the sport. So in actually, you know, very much, you know, within the Olympics, it's, it's sailing, you know, is, is the sport and then windsurfing and now kite surfing a part of that. And, you know, it is a different bunch of people, you know, we've got a launch from a marina, whereas, you know, outside of that, when I go windsurfing, I always launch from a beach. So there's, there is a bit of a weird disconnect in that bit and it's almost the more competition elements or the more professional elements, they do pull away a bit from the lifestyle. But then if I take all the, the girls I'm currently coaching outside of doing the thing competitively, they're a normal bunch of fairly frothy, you know, windsurfers anyway. So they've still got the lifestyle side. It's just, they've got this slightly more kind of polished 
competition side where you have to wear the right kit in the right place and launch out the swanky marina rather than just off a beach. So it definitely pulls in both directions, but I think you can you can still maintain both. And for a lot of them, it's the thing that maintains the lifestyle is, is getting paid to the sport. It's quite an interesting one, Sam, because it, it, it strikes me that you're, you operate with a well-established and very mature uh, governing body um, for sport. But I'm, I'm curious, Rhiannon, would your perceptions be the same in skateboarding? Because it strikes me that a sport like skateboarding, and, and let's recognize that as a sport and more, perhaps doesn't necessarily fit with what we might consider to be a fairly rationalized, um, governed sport as perhaps uh, where, where Sam is, is, is coming from. So I'm keen to explore that with you if that's possible. Yeah, I think I was just thinking about that, that first question about the tension there. And I think, I mean, my impression, and I'm not, I have to say I'm not super into the professional world of skateboarding these days. I'm more on these like uh, nonprofit skateboarding programs for youth. But still, I think my impression of uh, competition in skateboarding is that it's a very small part of it. Um, it's, I don't know, 10%, you know, I, I think it's something that even if you look at the top pro skaters in the world, a lot of them never compete. They never do competitions. They put out video clips. They, I don't know, get in magazines. They, I don't know, they have these personalities that make them popular. So I think, um, yeah, there's for a big segment of skateboarding competition is not at all part of it, or at least not like official competition. It's more like competing I don't know, challenging yourself or like maybe people around you um, from the kind of official side and the Olympic side. I think, yeah, this <laughs> seems to be a big challenge because there isn't really that much standardization within skateboarding. It's not like we have, um, you know, standard courses that we compete on. Uh, there's, I think, I'm, I'm very interested to see how it's done in the Olympics in terms of judging because, uh, I don't know, so much of skateboarding is about um kind of personal style and creativity and things like that and i i'm curious about how they'll be able to um measure those sorts of things so yeah i think what i'm seeing is that it's all really in the infancy and we have our our kind of federation or whatever it is the the olympic federation i think is um world skate which is like all roller sports and no other sport from this is actually in the olympics either right now so it's kind of like skateboarding and I guess BMX is going into these are like kind of pioneering sports in this regard so we'll see what happens. Yeah wonderful Rhiannon thank you. Ben I don't know if you want to offer anything around that question between lifestyle and competition. Yeah I mean the word tension kind of rings true you know but there's definitely discussion there's there's debate within the broader industry I suppose kind of similar to um, skateboarding, there is the opportunity within our within our sport, our, our domain, to make more of a name for yourself, perhaps not competing. So you could be putting out video parts, you could be um, marketing yourself um, in, in more of a niche way. So that, that definitely exists. And indeed, that's where it, it grew from. You know, that's where everything started before there was a, a more uh, formal competitive route. So maybe I'm a bit more skewed because I am more involved in the, in the competitive side. It's after all what I'm employed to do. Um, I would say that tension is definitely less than I, than I think it was maybe a few years ago. I think people are learning to live with the idea that you can actually have both existing in harmony. Um, and even just to put it in context, you know, just, just yesterday we've, we've been at a competition there. Uh, the judges, the coaches, obviously the riders, the athletes all still snowboard to the park um, 
do the competition. Everybody, everybody has their role, whether it be judging or competing or um, being being some sort of official. But on the way to the park and on the way back from the park, everyone still puts their snowboard on and hits the same side hits. Um, you know, different teams would be hanging out with each other, whether it be coaches or, or riders or officials. Um, and there's still that kind of shared stoke on the way to the park and the way, way from it. Um, we've been lucky that the weather's been really nice the last few days. And again, like immediately after the competition, you've got everybody riding together, doing their thing. And, and, and I do feel that that's, that's symbolic of, I would say that we, we are a few years into the, the idea of the Olympic Games being there um, and that being a route for a rider. But they're also being um, that it doesn't take away from a rider expressing you know, his or herself outside of that. Um, and I would say actually most riders, and we encourage this, will have their own time during the winter season to go out and maybe film a part or to go and do a rail trip um, or even a backcountry trip where they're maybe more you know, split boarding or explore, exploring the, the backcountry a little bit more. Uh, so I do see that becoming a little bit, I, I see that tension easing in summary. I really do. And that's almost encouraging for a sport like skateboarding, you know, that's more in its infancy in terms of that and I'm not saying it isn't a transition towards more competition, but as Rhiannon said, currently, you know, around 10%. Um, and hearing Sam and, and Ben discuss their respective sports, there's harmony. It sounds like there's real harmony in the context that the two of you work. Derek, I don't know if you want to offer up our next question that probably leads us more towards uh, our topic, but this is all super relevant. No, I think it's important to have that, that context of how we, how we view in our sports in, in advance of perhaps getting into the meat and veg of, of some of this conversation. And, and cards on the table, my, my background is yeah, I'm a rugby coach. Yeah, I've played rugby. And we, we, we appreciate skill in our sport yeah, and what skill affords you in terms of being able to yeah, execute things technically and tactically that might give you a competitive advantage um, over the opposite team. And I'm really curious within, within freestyle uh, and or action sports how would you define skill what does what does skill look like for you within your sport um, and i'll i'll start with um with ben this time if that's okay um i guess really the obvious answer for me would be someone who looks like completely at ease but but performing at the very highest level um and and obviously enjoying what they're doing um that might sound like a bit of an obvious answer, but yes, there's a technical progression there. Of course, there's, we, we all have a, a linear progression that we, we, you know, you have to move through in order to acquire a certain trick. But if you look at, um, say, the last couple of weeks, there's been a, a performance session in Austria where most of the world's best are riding. Um, it's one of the few places you can actually ride right now. Um, the weather's been really good. The jumps are perfect. Um, you've got some of the best riders in the world. Um, and you're seeing tricks that have never been done before. So progression's happening really quickly, despite there having been this, this five, six-month break where, where most people weren't riding. Um, and looking at any of those riders landing new tricks that haven't been done before, um, or even tricks that aren't done very often, but making them look easier than they were ever done before, maybe putting their own stamp of authority or, or, or style on it, um, I just say that it looks easy, you know, despite it being incredibly difficult and at quite high risk, they still make it look, you know, incredibly easy. That's, that's the, the most obvious answer to me. 
Thanks, Ben. Uh, and what I'm hearing there is that you've got a very sort of embodied ideation of what being skillful is within your sport and the connection between the athlete or the rider and the environment that they're operating in, uh, within. Um, I really like the fact that you positioned uh, within that, that response as well around being both being at ease, but also enjoying yourself. And I'm keen to explore that uh, a little bit more if that's Okay, so what does what does enjoying yourself look like relative to being skillful within your sport? I think that's for me again, like looking back over the last couple of weeks, where we've kind of been all getting going again after quite a long a long break from it, is seeing when I say people enjoy themselves. Obviously, you know, I'm watching from afar sometimes, and I more mean that you're watching a group of riders work with each other really, really well and, and in quite good quite good harmony um where they're obviously excited for each other you know the peer-to-peer learning is incredibly strong um people getting you know genuinely excited for each other learning new tricks there's not the same uh competitive element that you might expect i suppose in in other disciplines you know that there's very much you know it doesn't matter if it's a rider from new zealand or austria or, or whatever um they learn a new trick or open up a new idea of doing a trick. Maybe somebody else is inspired by that and perhaps does something kind of similar, but it leads on to something else. And you can just see, you know, in that environment, everybody getting quite excited for each other as well as for themselves. Um, and that's more what I mean when I, when I say somebody obviously enjoying themselves, it, it, I more mean it as a group. Um, and you can just see one thing lead to another. Cheers, Ben. And I think that's pretty consistent on my, my reading of, um, of learning and, and skill acquisition, skill development in skateboarding. So I'll, I'll probably just uh, lean yeah. on, on Rhiannon to see what her thoughts are and what, on what Ben just said around that, that peer-to-peer um, aspect, almost trading tricks uh, and uh, trading off tricks. Is that something yeah. consistent that you see within skateboarding? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the that kind of community aspect and and, well, basically like hyping each other up by what you're doing and what you're seeing that's essential to learning new tricks and learning skills in skateboarding. It's actually interesting. I didn't think about that as like, this is what skills look like because I've also seen people that are very skilled that are hating it in the moment when they're trying a trick and they're just getting extremely angry and frustrated. But I think at some deeper level, there is obviously self-motivation and enjoyment. And when they get that trick, obviously they're elated. So um, I think there's that. And another thing that I definitely related to from what Ben said was this um, ability to make something very difficult look effortless. I think that is, I mean, sports or freestyle sports like skateboarding, so much of it is about uh, style, I think. And I think that effortless part is a big, is a big aspect. And I think something that I was thinking is like with this question is, that it's just really hard to answer when it's uh, these more individual sports because, you know, for one person, it could be like being skilled could look like being very like powerful and fast and having big pop or whatever. But for somebody else, it could be just about like, I don't know, fluidity and creativity and maybe doing a pretty average trick on, on a totally innovative obstacle or spot or something like that, you know? So I think, yeah, the style and the creativity is a big factor. I think that skateboarding uh, really like thrives on novelty. So it's like continuously progressing. Like if you look at what people were doing in skateboarding between now and 10 years ago, it's completely different. 
Um, and yeah, I think like something that's probably in common with a lot of other individual sports, especially like climbing, uh, something like that too, is with skateboarding, you don't just like build a skill or a trick that you do on the same kind of obstacle, like on some standard course or something, you have to be able to bring that to like many different environments, kind of what you said, Derek, like it's really like skateboarders have a very different and strange relationship with the environment. We like go around a city and we look at buildings and ramps and ledges and rails and we are just like, oh, that's a spot. I could do that trick there. I could do that trick there. So it's, yeah, it's a, being able to apply your skills in lots of different combinations. Um, yeah, sorry, <laughs> jumping in six people. Um, just before we move on to Sam, to get your perspective on this, something you said there, Rianne, and reminded me of uh, on the Looking Sideways podcast, um, Lauren Hill was interviewed and she was discussing within surfing the doors that have been opened for women, particularly around the recognition of creativity within skill development in what was traditionally you know, quite a gendered space and uh, more centred around power. Um, and yeah, I just thought that was a phenomenal interview and just really interesting. And I think creativity and skill acquisition is, uh, is hugely recognised now and very much present in, in, in your three sports. Yeah, I was just going to jump in before we before we go to Sam, if that if that's okay. And, and I think something stands out in in what stuff that both Ben and and Rhiannon said. And I'm going to quote back to Rhiannon um, something Rodney Mullen said uh, in 2015. Um, so quote: uh, What you do is cruise around the same streets you've seen a hundred times, but suddenly because you already have something in this fixed domain of this target, it's like what will match this trick. How can I expand? How can the context, how can the environment change the very nature of what I do? End quote. And, and I think that that speaks to what you were talking about, Rhiannon, around how you might interact with the environment, but then also perhaps how um, uh, athletes from different countries come to an environment they've never been in before and the context of the environment is shaping the nature of the very tricks that they're doing, which, which is a really interesting um, a way in which to consider how people develop skill or develop tricks uh, within within your sport are shaped by the very nature in which they interact with their environment. Now, I wonder, Ross, in an environment like yours, where it's not necessarily, or sorry, Sam, um, that would be it. that would get hey, it. Well, he's got one of those funny names, doesn't he? Where the first yeah, and never, second name are both first names. <laughs> never, never, never trust a man with two first names, Derek. That's the, yeah, uh, that's the advice I was always yeah. given. Yeah. So, but I'm just keen to understand, based on what I've just said, and attributing that to Rhiannon and Ben's world. How does that differ when you're on the water? You've got the wind. You're in a very dynamic environment, which is different. So, how do you then? How does how does the very nature of that context shape the way in which your athletes interact with? an appropriate skill within that environment so it's an interesting one in terms of um, what we're doing so a lot of the time if they're take the the new breed of guys that are racing so they're foil racing what we have to ex execute is very similar things but the environment is always changing so actually the, the what you you see not having to learn new tricks but you having to learn different ways to go quick different ways to jive different ways to tack but actually the, the biggest change is the environment so you'll you very, very rarely ever get two, two sessions the same or two days the same. It just doesn't happen. And then the problem is when we go and race or compete internationally, every venue has its differences. 
So we, we talk about the, the most skilled sailor being the person that is the most adaptable. So the person that can adapt mostly to the environment and that's either being able to adapt um, the technique um, to basically best deploy it in that skill or adapt to so the challenge we have at the moment. We're in a new discipline um, that they're really keen to make as media friendly as possible for the Olympics because you know, sailing with the best will in the world isn't particularly media friendly. Most people, including people that sail, don't know what's going on most of the time when you watch on TV. So they're trying to make it more media friendly. So at the moment, every time it goes to an event, they change the formats. So the format's different, the type of racing's different, how they decide the medal's different. So actually our, our most skills ones are the ones that can adapt. So the last, last event we turned up to, we normally do a progressive, you know, after six days, the person that comes out the best through the whole thing is the winner. And they chucked that out of the window on the last day and went, right, if you're in the top 10, we're just going to chuck you in one last couple of races and whoever wins it, wins it. And, you know, the most, in theory, the most skilled sailor should come through because they can adapt to something, a change in pressure, change of course, all, all those kind of different bits and pieces. Uh, just to flip over, though, the bit that um, Ben and you know, Rhiannon got into as well about the peer learning stuff, I think is, is really interesting. So for us in the last year where we started a new project, I normally coach like three people, four people maybe. Um, and you think, you know, you're getting loads of coach time, loads of one-on-one time where we've got a new discipline and we worked out that we, there's lots of things we didn't know. And there's lots of things that we didn't know. We didn't know. We actually took a squad of 14 on, um, which is, is pretty excessive for us. But the, the idea the whole year was based around just peer learning. So hopefully all learn stuff and do it off each other. So, and the results at the end of the year, were some of the best we've ever had. Um, and mostly that's because the, the skill in that was all that, that openness, that sharing, that pushing each other, that, trying trying those elements so i think i find that that peer thing really interesting yeah and i was actually going to navigate the the conversation back to asking you around how peer learning happens within within your sports or you can you can probably move on to the next segment now but um what, what i was probably going to point to was the fact that laurie and i had a conversation the other night around trying to find um, evidence in literature around how skill is developed within the context of action freestyle sports um, and I, I think there's a lot in that sports like mine rugby uh, can learn from the way in which um, uh, athletes support each other and kick each other on without necessarily being constrained by um, normative prescriptions of how you might coach somebody so coaching naturally happens in the context of these environments just by the very nature of, of social inclusion, social interaction and informal coaching and learning by these people and without necessarily knowing that they're, that's what they're doing. So I, I think certainly from my perspective, there's a lot that we can learn um, from yourself, Sam and Rhiannon and, uh, and Ben around how we can maybe apply some of the principles that you adopt within your sport into what I would probably term more traditional um, uh, invasion team sports. Laurie, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to move on to you if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, although now that you've said that, there's there's just something that has cropped up that I, I can't not mention in that, you know, part of our role as coach developers is to, you know, draw from an evidence base and even just making sense of the sport that I've been part of for the last 20 years. It's really hard when you're reading and listening about subject areas that are, you know, researched in other sports, you know, like it, it almost becomes unspecific sports science. So can I take something that's been looked at in rugby and really apply it within sailing? I have no idea. It's, 
it's a complicated space that I'm keen to better understand. But I think just over the last 15 minutes, we've very much moved into the territory of environment, both physical and social. And I wonder if the three of you could um, offer us something around the environments in which you're each a part of and how they support the development of skill. And that could be either socially or, or, or the physical environments. And whoever would like to answer it first, I think just unmute. Yeah, I can, I can talk a little bit about, I guess, the, the sort of context of what we call these uh, social skateboarding projects that are working around the world. So these are kind of like youth development programs and they look different everywhere, but the point they all have in common is they run some kind of skateboarding based programming, uh, usually for young people. And uh, yeah, thinking about, I don't know how, how this affects coaching and stuff like the environments are really set up to be like kind of safe spaces. The focus is really not on skill acquisition in terms of the sport. It's focused way more on um, building up life skills and on other benefits of taking part in, in physical activity. So, you know, mental health, um, friendships and stuff like that. So that's, that's really where they're coming from. And like in terms of coaching, the, it's mostly like we'll focus just on the beginner level. So, of course, if someone is just coming, coming to skateboarding, they have to learn the very basics with some support. So like pushing and stopping and uh, turning and maybe going up the ramps. But I, I feel like the goal for most coaches or kind of mentors in these programs is to get people independent as quickly as possible. And then they forge their own kind of learning path with sort of the, the peer support and peer-to-peer -peer learning. And then also having these kind of coaches or staff playing more of like a mentorship role. So um, yeah, I think that they're kind of just continuing this idea of like skateboarding being something that is really individual and it's up to the person to decide what, what they want it to be. And there's not really, I think there's a real aversion to like rules or like, this is like, you need to get to this level and you need to do this or that. Like people talk about like, is there like a trick family tree? Like you need to learn this trick before you learn that trick and blah, blah, blah. And some people are kind of stricter than other people are like, no, if you want to kick foot before you can do a shove it, whatever, you know, like it's, yeah. So that's just kind of when I was thinking about the environment, like these projects are working in like more than 60 countries around the world. So it's hard to think of like an actual physical environment that's consistent but I think in terms of like socially that's how they're set up I would say. And Sam you can sympathize with me here in the stark contrast between what Rhiannon's just shared and perhaps sailing and windsurfing whereby it was certainly more sailing when you're learning the learning the sport for the first time you've got kind of level one here are the outcomes level two here are the outcomes level three here are the outcomes but it sounds you know from what Rhiannon shared skill Development of skill is almost an output of something more important. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we're, we're really regimented, aren't we, in sailing? Um, and it's, but then you take, you take windsurf, windsurf is really interesting, you get hit, hit a certain level and it just gets, it gets super loose. Do you mean you can do, do whatever you like? Um, you know, what's, what's the goal? I want to end up over there, do it in any way that makes it work. And it's, it's, it's an interesting sometimes of it's the, the regimented bit is sometimes it's, it's maybe more for the the instructor than it is for the student. So you can think an instructor is trying to get someone somewhere, but actually, if they're if they're really green as an instructor, you know, who is it harder to break the skill down for? Well, actually, it might be the the instructor or the coach. 
So we'll give you this really regimented script or we'll give you this really way, easy way of doing it to make sure you try and break it down in a really easy way. Whereas actually, if you just left someone to it for a bit and they cracked on, they'd, they'd probably get there with the right guidance. But I think a lot of the time that's, that's to help the, the instructor. But you've got some really good coaches. In theory, they could just break it down however it fits for that person at the time, like in the environment. So it's a bit of a, I don't know, you, tr- you know, try and get to the, the outcome or trying to break down the process is sometimes a tricky one to navigate. What, what does the right guidance look like, Sam? Well, it depends, it depends what you're trying to deliver, isn't it? So, you know, I think, you know, probably in all our environments, like number one's got to be safety. So actually, so a lot of that is, you know, you, you know, can someone have a go at this safely without hurting themselves? You know, are they enjoying it? And are they vaguely learning the inverted commas right thing? I think is the, is the challenge. So, so, so a lot of that sometimes is, yeah, can you set up a, a safe space for someone to learn in? where they're going to hopefully continue to want to do it. So see some progression and they're going to get somewhere towards the goal. But actually if it ticks those three boxes, you probably don't need to be that prescriptive on what it needs to do. The challenge is depending on the, if you've got a, a maybe a new coach or a coach that's not as okay, we're trying to navigate someone through that. You probably then need to give them some pretty hard and fast things that they can deliver. Um, but you know, you traditionally see with much more experienced coaches, they always look like they're winging it. Actually, they're probably winging it because they're, they're probably delivering it in that way for the first ever time because they think that will work better with that person. So they're maybe not winning it. Winging it actually has been the most adaptive coach. Um, yeah, or they might be winging it, but we'll hopefully never know. And I think you've touched on a, a topic there, Sam, in terms of managing risk within sport, which uh, certainly... Um, yeah, it's definitely a part of the sports that you guys come from. But I think maybe before we go there, um, Ben, I'm keen to hear from you in relation to environment, physical, social, and how that supports skill progression. Yeah, I can definitely definitely sympathise with a lot of what's been said there. Um, I, I also sort of didn't mention at the start, but I have, I have delivered instructor and coach modules as well. And, and we do often find that I think new coaches coming in um, are definitely quite hungry to know what, to use the analogy already used by Renan was the the tree of skills you know like okay what's the progression what what do I need to learn in order to take away and to and to distribute and to get you know all these all these kids up to whatever the, the high level trip might be and, and a big part of that is trying to describe how important the environment is um, and it's really like just seeing that that linear motor skill acquisition model is just the very tip of the iceberg for us and that actually all the kind of learned experiences and um, affordances that they pick up on as, as they as they learn these skills are actually just as important, if not more important. Um, and I was just thinking back to what we were talking about before about kind of fixed environments. And, and like when uh, we we're talking about skateboarders looking around and seeing a bunch of different, you know, new things that they maybe hadn't seen before. And it's the same that even in a competition for us, um, you've got say three fixed rails, three jumps and, you know, to a new eye, it might look as if you've just simply got to hit those three rails, do the hardest tricks you can, and then you know whoever does the most technical tricks will win the competition. But kind of taking it a bit further than that, and it's actually the rider who, on the day, is able to to spot a pattern or or a transition that maybe nobody else has, um, perform a high level trick, but do it in a way that maybe nobody else has so far, um, and just win the respect of both other riders but also the judges. And then that's kind of back to this this peer to peer idea where. Um, 
judges will openly admit when we discuss it with them that they'll judge different events um because it is so subjective they'll, they'll perhaps judge different events uh with what i would call kind of crowd wisdom on the day so in other words if they uh replayed a video of the same competition a couple months later they might actually judge it slightly differently so it, there's a kind of feeling on the day uh within that environment of you know the best rider the most creative rider the most technical rider um will win the the kind of shared um so i'm struggling for words in this one but will win the shared admiration of of the crowd and the judges um so where i'm going with that is that yes there's a linear motor pattern that of course they have to learn um but actually the experiences that they pick up on the way uh for how to spot new patterns or spot new transitions or new ways of doing tricks that nobody else have then that, you know that's just as important thank you for for giving us that um, and i think you've given us a really nice in into into your perspective on, on on skill development you talk both about linear motor patterns there but you also use the word affordances which might which might infer that you have perhaps an ecological view of how skill um, is appropriated by what people perceive within their environment. Can you, can you talk about how you develop that through your coaching, both um, both developing, say, the foundations of, or the roots of, of the skill tree, as it were, um, while still um, supporting people to understand how best to pick up on information within their environment that they could exploit um, in pursuit of executing a skill or a trick? Sorry, I'm really sorry. Some of that just broke up. Derek, do you mind just saying that once more? Christ, I hate I'll see if I can, if I can um, remember what I, I just said. I thinking not going to be able to remember all that. That was a long question. I, I've had one too many concussions in my life as well, so my short-term <laughs> memory's up my ass. Um, I, I, I think what I, was, what, I was, uh, what I was inferring is what I picked up in, in what you said there is that you've got an appreciation both for linear motor skill development uh, but you also use the word affordances within within the context of your response, which might hint at the fact that you have a an ecological view of of, of skill development. So what I wondered is, um, to what extent do you balance both the need for developing the roots of the tree, so the linear skill development, while supporting people to become sensitized to information within their environment that they can use or exploit to do a trick? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a difficult question. That I mean, it's something that I'm I'm more and more aware of the the more I do this um, and speak to other coaches, both within snowboarding and, and lots of other action sports or free sports. Um, because it's it's not the easiest thing simply to tell somebody to do, but I suppose what we're trying to encourage, um, and I do definitely kind of go back to a lot of peer for this, is the ability to kind of similar to skateboarding I'm sure is that trying and trying a trick again and again and, and failing it and finally getting it um, is trying to encourage riders to to learn from that so to learn from the process they went through um, to kind of interpret it to think about it a little bit and to maybe and it, it might not even be consciously it might simply be that they, they pick up on some of those experiences for the next time around and I, I really see that a lot with trick learning so unlocking perhaps the next branch up um, becomes easier the more 
that they've actually gone through that process. So quite often we'll encourage a rider um, and we'll not necessarily talk about what we're doing, but we'll encourage a rider that might be struggling with a new harder trick to simply um, perhaps learn something that's a little bit easier in terms of their skill set, but it's still new to them just to have them go through a process of unlocking something new again and perhaps failing a few times on the way um, just to kind of refresh, you know, that, that experience so they can apply it directly back into perhaps unlocking that slightly more scary trick or, or technically difficult trick. Um, yeah. Does that, does that make sense? I was just going to say, I'm still picking up on, on the affordance piece. Yeah. So you use, use very yeah. technical language in terms of affordance. So I'm just, I'm just wondering if you could just talk about what, what that looks like in terms of supporting people to recognize how they exploit um, the environment to, to appropriate a trick, for example. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps I'm using language that I'm not um, entirely au fait with, but uh, it's, it's more, I've just learned, I guess, more and more recently that if we can have a discussion with a rider who might be hitting a bit of a, a wall, for want of a better phrase, um, and we can go back to maybe just discussing how it was that they learned the most, um, the most recent other trick that they may have learned, and kind of talk that process through. Um, I, I've just felt it, it starts to help them, perhaps even if it is subconsciously, uh, you know, take that to to this other skill that they may they may or may not be struggling on. And I think yeah. it's worth I think it's worth pointing out here. I know Anna's going to move on. Got a, got a question now, but. You know, there's an element of all of our questions in the direction of these interviews that it, that sits within Derek, Anna and myself trying to make sense of our experiences, both as athletes, coaches, coach developers, and certainly Anna within, a, within an academic space. And that's why we are so keen to learn from other sports. And it kind of takes me back to um, Ben, my, my, where we first met in that, what was the... Uh, used to be um, Sports Coach UK programme, Aspire, that we met on. And that for me was the first time that I'd ever had a conversation really with sports like with my own. And I remember there was, you know, like 12 of us sat around and there was people from shooting and swimming and snowboarding and sailing. And that was so eye-opening to me because we all, we all came from different environments. We all had different approaches. We all, you know, used different theory and we all had our own language and the process of understanding and making sense of that together was so rich. And that's part of why selfishly we have pursued this podcast because we just, we, we want to do that more often. Um, so uh, enough for me, but um, Anna, I know you've got a question. Yeah, no, I was just enjoying that uh, most recent bit of chat because it was actually about coaching and like, what does coaching actually look like? What do you actually do when you're coaching in your sports? So I think this one's going to Rhiannon then. So is there, is there a role for the coach in what you do? And if so, what, what is that? What does it look like? Yeah, so I guess like, um, yeah, and the kind of work that the project at the Good Push Alliance is working with, it's more much more like amateur level. And I think there is definitely a role. The role varies depending on the context and uh, I guess the, the skill level of the kids that are coming. A lot of times at these organizations like Skatestem, for example, you have a big, a big range. So you've got complete beginner skateboarders coming and then you have people that are quite skilled and have been doing it for years and years and years. So I think because of this kind of um, freedom and independence sort of thing with skateboarding, the role of the coach 
is really to be like uh, an observer and a motivator. So um, yeah, just kind of seeing for each person where they're at and, and knowing when they can push things to the next level, being encouraging for them. I think also people's personalities come into it a lot. So a lot of these uh, organizations are working with really marginalized young people and uh, those that have been affected by trauma. So it's also about what Sam said, like making safe spaces for them and like helping them get to the point of believing in themselves. And, um, and for some kids, like honestly, we'll just probably skateboard, pushing around, you know, not doing that much. They might do that for years and other kids are going to be really, really motivated. And as a coach, the role is to kind of identify where people are at and what's going to keep them motivated and having fun in skateboarding. Because I think at the end of the day, there's like, you know, not enough people in the world, especially young people are doing sports and fun is kind of the main motivator. I just read a really interesting kind of research study today that was saying that for people with disabilities uh, getting into sport, actually like lack of enjoyment was the main reason that they're dissuaded from it and also kind of fear of the comp competitive element. So I think that that's a role that the coach can play is making sure people are having fun and not feeling like they're under too much pressure and that any kind of competition or feelings like that are somehow still enjoyable, you know, on some level. So, yeah. And I know we'll be keen to move this question around, but I have seen some of the footage from, I think it came from some of the Good Push Alliance um, uh, interventions in terms of how you're making skateboarding accessible for people with disabilities. And it's phenomenal because that's probably not a sport that I would have thought would have been the most accessible but um yeah it, it's just so inspiring to look at do you think in in terms of accessibility to a broader reach around the world does skateboarding lend itself to that as a sport um accessibility you mean for people with disabilities or yeah and also uh, different backgrounds uh, oh, yeah. different countries yeah yes Definitely. I think, um, oh, I guess what people, what we like to say is like, I mean, you just really need a skateboard and some flat ground and you can skateboard uh, and you can, skateboarding can look many different ways. It can be sitting on a board. It can be whatever. That's like the, also the creative and kind of individual style element. So um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity. And for example, when Skatistan first started operating in Afghanistan in 2007, like skateboarding didn't exist at all. And the idea wasn't to bring like the whole cultural baggage of skateboarding along. It was just to bring a board with four wheels and like, you know, people could make of it what they wanted. The kids could make of it what they wanted. They could dress how they usually dress. And, you know, uh, you see now lots of videos of, you know, girls around the world wearing skirts and dresses when they skateboard and where, you know, it's, it's cool. Like anyone can kind of make of it what they want, which I think is awesome. Cause for a long time it was pretty, male dominated pretty white and pretty western so we're finally seeing some change in skate community worldwide yeah, cultural baggage what an interesting comment yeah anna i'll leave you to direct your question okay um yeah so i suppose uh, sam hasn't uh, had a, much to say uh, recently uh, so yeah what, what about coaching and windsurfing then um what does it look like for you and particularly with that skill element of it. How do you get someone, you were talking about that ability to adapt, so how do you coach someone to be good at that? Um, I suppose it's a, a bit like Rihanna, it all, it all depends on like what the what the level is of, of who you're coaching. So, you know, I, I bet in two two different places I'm coaching, I'm either, I'm either on kit for like the, the kind of the amateur level, and that's probably 
because you're doing a lot of like sort of you know, demoing stuff like have a, you know, this is what it looks like have a go at this um and then at the sort of professional level i i sit in the boat and i carry water bottles around and some spares and some tools and a bag of scrunchies and that's my main job um which is kind of doing that which is sort of chasing people around on the water um and then actually it's, it's a bit different you know it depends on what they want so a lot of them would be it'd be really useful if you got loads of video for me so i can have a look at it so that might be my job is taking video others might be um you know can, can you help me sense check some stuff so i'll ask some questions you know so they'll tell me something and i'll probably question whether that's kind of fact or feeling or or why they think that or why they're going to try that or what they're going to have a go at next um and then for others it's still sometimes the odd kind of coaching gift of you know what have you observed and what do you think i should try and it, it kind of it varies a little bit at that end on the it's really individual depending on the athlete so depending on what actually what helps them progress what they want to see and i think at that stage for me as a coach it's understanding a lot more who i'm coaching rather than necessarily what i'm coaching whereas at the amateur level it's a bit more focusing on the what i'm coaching there's still quite a lot of the who but because you're probably coaching something very similar across the board you're probably delivering in a slightly more generic way do you do much of the kind of changing the environment then it's the environment's changing without you having to do that as a coach no like the constraints thing's really interesting like so i don't I get, I get really worried sometimes. I, I worked with a coach developer recently. Well, I, was, I was running a drill and I was like, I'm just a bit concerned that this drill I'm running is just like pure block practice. Like it's not varied at all, you know, and, but the problem is we, we had a problem to solve, which is quite a kind of, it's like a, just a time and distance problem. So you hit that at a certain time on a certain mark. And I was like, I'm just a bit worried that it's a bit dull. And he goes, well, the thing is, every time you run it, it's different. The conditions are changing, the wind shifting water state's changing so he goes actually it's really varied it's just that you're not the person doing the varying and actually you're, you're a bit tied in so it, it's sort of sometimes we almost have to be careful that you don't disappear too far down that rabbit hole because you could vary something so much because it's being varied for you anyway that it all goes out the window so instead what i do is i probably i vary the the application and removal of pressure so normally do that by by numbers or watches or time. So that 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 would be the constraint I play with mostly. Like, can you make it more pressured? Can you make it less pressured? Or up to rather than actually having to play around too much with the constraints of changing the environment because the environment is constantly under flux. Or you know, because we're very wind dependent, we just turn up and that's the environment we've got. So I, I can't make it ten knots windier. It just is. No, so I've got to deal with that. So actually, it's then it's the, the, the pressure side that I kind of tend to vary a little bit more. That's really interesting. Um, it reminded me a bit of being a rugby player when the coaches are, got really into um, chaos and making everything chaos. And it was just chaos. It was not yeah. actually helpful. Um, yeah, so I mean, luckily, sailing basically is just it is chaos anyway. So it's like, so, so you almost you just don't want to go, don't take any further. It is like it is chaos. It's pretty loose. Like, just, just go with that. Never, you never know what's going to happen next. You tear me with that brush, Anna. You're saying that I was just chaotic when I coached you. Uh, not a, no, you were like the opposite end. It was like, do this, 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 and the line out. <laughs> yes, if A, then B, then B, then C. A discussion for another time. <laughs> cool. Um, so, I don't know, Ben, did you have anything to add on that sort of what does coaching look like? No, no, I enjoyed that a lot. That was, that was interesting. There's definitely um, a lot that echoes with 
how we see the world. I think um, I, I know I'm always coming back to it, but I was just thinking there about um, Derek, your earlier question too, and and I do feel that this um, idea of who the writers are writing with is quite important. Um, and of of course, there's lots of different ways of giving feedback, and often we'll come in, and our job is to be um, giving quite pres- prescriptive technical feedback but it's only a, a small part of it. Um, and then the rest, because kind of similar to Sam, we're not necessarily out there demonstrating, well, we're definitely not out there demonstrating these high level tricks, I can assure you, because they're, they're you know, so much um, further on than what we were doing sort of five, 10 years ago. Um, but we're there certainly starting, the, starting that discussion, but then allowing the riders to have a lot of um, problem solving happen within themselves as well which will quite often be part of, quite often will not be part of that. Um, you know, we do definitely spend a lot of our time encouraging the riders to go out and get that volume of practice, that variety of practice without us on purpose. Um, and that could be as simple as them staying on after performance camp, uh, riding with friends, maybe not even necessarily athletes within a national governing body, but with friends that they've grown up riding with. Um, and again, similar to, to Sam with the weather aspect, it might be that for whatever reason, when we were there as coaches, that we couldn't quite get onto that particular trick because the weather wasn't good enough or it was too windy. Um, and that magic moment might actually happen the week after we've gone home. And it's a result of that rider basically figuring it out um, with, with their friends. You know, quite often it'll be a phone call and, and maybe just bounce some stuff back and forth. But um, I do see that that ability to make a change and feel it kinesthetically comes with them trying and testing ideas and discussing it amongst themselves. Um, so to bring that back to a coach, we just make sure that that environment is set up, that that can happen, um, which is easier said than done sometimes, especially right now where, you know, we can only travel in small groups, but I'm definitely beginning to realize now how important it is that these guys ride with their friends in between what we're doing as a team. Ben, thank you. I think I was, that's the point I was trying to get at. What I was, what I was trying to do was shine a light on something that it, it, it sounds to me you do with real skill, but with real intention, which is blending different, you may not, you may not describe them as theoretical approaches, but you blend different approaches mm-hmm. to the acquisition of knowledge and skill together. So peer-to-peer, direct instruction, but also just allowing people to explore the environment while subsequently supporting them to audit such decisions that they're making within the environment. It just sounds to me that you've got a really nice way of blending those things that you're not necessarily wedded to one approach over the other. What, what experience yeah. did you have or do, do you have that, that, that brought you to that point where you, where you can layer things or, or, or bring things together? You can assemble approaches together around, around an athlete. Honestly, I think like trial and error. I really do. I think, you have a sense sometimes that, you know, maybe when somebody landed a new trick or perhaps fell on a new trick, um, you know, that it might not have been the best idea at the time or, or, or even perhaps they did land it, but you know that maybe that wasn't the right decision at that time given the lead up to that trick. Um, so, you know, we quite often talk about like that kind of fist bump moment, like before they drop into a competition or before they drop into try a new trick. And it's quite a symbolic gesture because although, you know, anybody can go out and dish out the fist pumps for it to mean anything, it, it needs to kind of, you need to build up that relationship with that rider over a, you know, 
serious amount of time in order for that person to feel um, that that means something that, that that symbolic kind of fist pump actually means yes I believe that you've done all the appropriate background work in order to give this trick a try because we know it has risk um, but it's trial and error that got us there I, I would honestly say it's quite a hard thing even when I'm looking at you know running um, coach courses or instructor courses I, I find it quite a difficult thing to kind of to to talk about is if you can read a blueprint and get into it it's more of a, a learned experience that something that i still feel i'm going through all the time i'm just reflecting on, on what you've all shared and i feel like we're almost moving towards a space of uh relationships within your sports between coaches and and riders skateboarders windsurfers and it was interesting you know hearing from rhiannon's perspective that that role model, that facilitator, that acknowledgement of um, you know beyond performance and about being the individuals and and their participation in sports, and then Sam offered this beautiful point around him being there and his athletes being able to draw upon him when they need it, um, and him responding to that, but equally recognizing when it's appropriate to step in. And then Ben looking like this orchestrator of an environment and recognizing risk within that and the value of peer-to-peer -peer feedback. And I just wonder, uh, I'm left thinking, you know, relationships within your sports. It, yeah, is, is there, it just sounds lovely. <laughs> it just sounds really important, really, really important. Um, and I'm rambling, but that's, that's just me reflecting on what you said. Can anyone offer anything there? Yeah, I think, Laurie, you, you've probably hit the nail on the head that in in a sport like mine where, where I might have 40 players in the environment um, uh, around a single session, I've got to select um, 20 to 22 players of a weekend. Um, it becomes entirely um, more complex. Um, and I, I'm, I'm time poor in being able to invest in those relationships. So I suppose just it becomes a transaction uh, and it becomes fleeting conversations or, uh, and sometimes feedback because uh, you don't necessarily have the time to sit back and invest the thinking in being able to construct um, um, what is probably the right feedback for somebody. You just sometimes just give the noise for the sake of giving the noise. So I suppose where I'm getting to in this ramble is I'm really envious, uh, genuinely envious and to some degree jealous of of the time that you've got available to you to work with the athlete you have, um, and I, I wonder, do you recognise how lucky you guys are to 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 have a, um, to have that gift available to you, the gift that we don't necessarily have in Invasion Team Sport. Um, I can go. Um, I guess I've never I've never thought about it that way, um, <laughs> but. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, I think it can be very difficult to connect one on one uh, with more than I don't know, like we, we, we try to advise people to have a ratio of like eight skaters to one coach or something, you know, if you have like a class going on, and that seems to work pretty well. And I can't imagine talking about, you know, dealing with 40, 40 people, 40 athletes, that is just insane. Um, and I guess it's kind of like the the nature of skateboarding is that it would already be maybe quite chaotic to have more than 20 or 30 people like in a single skate park having a session. So 
I think um, when we're running programming and classes and stuff, they're a little bit smaller, but I think this relationship thing is, is obviously really key in general with coaching. And I think it's even more so when it's uh, kind of around youth programming, because it's a lot about, you know, giving, giving young people like mentors and um, positive outlets and positive uh, fit role models in their lives. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else I was going to say there, but interesting to think about. Oh, I, one thing I want to say actually about the relationships is actually this really nice kind of um, community that comes up around skateboarding and the really strong relationships is really great. But I feel like sometimes what we see within our community and the social skateboarding community is that there's almost a danger there because you don't have the same boundaries that you might have uh, regularly between coaches and young athletes. So I think skateboarders so often to see each other as skateboarders and especially if the age of the coaches and mentors is a couple couple of years or something like this um that yeah we find it really important to that's actually one of the main things that we provide um online training and, and different things on is on kind of child protection and safeguarding and just bringing up these ideas of like hey if you're going to be like a kind of a coach and a mentor you got to think about how you're acting and you know are you are you smoking in front of the skaters are you I don't know inviting them out to go skate downtown later on like you need to think about these things which I guess maybe because a lot of people are not coming from a professional coaching background when they get into this it's a uh, kind of new for them so that was just something that came to mind so I suppose we started off talking about skills and skill acquisition but then the we've moved on to sort of relationships and stuff so as that does link to the final question so I'm, I'm okay to kick off with that Laurie uh which was um yeah does skill acquisition actually matter <laughs> um so I think in the that came from a place of in the coaching sphere particularly twitter sphere people seem pretty passionate about this idea of uh skill acquisition and it's um not something that I know loads about but people are seem really tied to it um so just wondering if it if you think it really matters um in your sports Go on, Sam. I'm going to chuck in a potato, mate. <laughs> slow, slow, slow reach for the uh, meat bun. Um, don't, it's, don't, yeah, don't mention potatoes in a derogatory way, please, Laurie. There's yeah. an Irishman on the call. Yeah. I, I mean, is, so was, is, is skill acquisition a thing? Is that the, effectively the, is, was that yeah, the question? Does it matter? Does it matter? Um, what's, I suppose if you, if you talk about, I mean, you need to acquire the skills. So yeah, like, you know, it has to. But I suppose it's um, how do you get there is probably the better bit. And I think probably what's come from most of this is um, actually probably the principal thing is the environment that you create. Like, so yeah, the environment you create rather than necessarily the, the individual process of basically how many times you crash, smash and burn to get there. Um, and actually, if you, if you create the right environment that allows people to fail fast and fail well, but also with good peer learning, you'll, you'll probably get there. Um, and I think back to something Derek mentioned earlier, of like, do we know how lucky we are to have those individual relationships? Um, yes, we probably do. However, our, probably the challenge that all three of us have is how do you convince people that are very, very clearly in individual sports that actually their success is totally wedded to how well their team operates? And that's, that's, the, that's the killer. So it's kind of, you know, you're trying to make, so skill acquisition for it to be really effective has to be, you know, peer-led like Ben was saying earlier or, you know, environment and community-led like Rihanna was saying. 
but um, you're trying to convince people that they're not going to get there on their own. But when they do get there, the problem I have is only only one of them goes. So it's a bit of a tricky one, convincing them that their success is totally wedded to the team. However, in the last six months, only one of them will be successful. That, that was just absolutely lovely, Sam. And you said the problem that I have is that only one of them goes. I think that problem sits um, with a lot more than just you. And actually, that is yeah. a problem that... Um, sport has asked and will continue to ask for many years and is it a problem or is that recognition of the challenge that is skill acquisition and, well, I, I think, and, and yeah. that being just one element of sport of course well i suppose the the tricky thing we've got is, is almost like this not totally unique but in olympic sport within sailing is in theory we could have the best three people in the world but only one of them goes because you're only allowed one person per nation, which, you know, you don't have an athletics, which I still think is, is pretty brutal. Like, you know, you could be world champion and not go to the Olympics, which is, which is pretty brutal. <laughs> but, you know, but that's, that's the nature of the beast. So trying to convince everyone they're in a team when that's the reality is, is, is pretty tricky. Can I, can I just pick up on that, that point? Uh, and I think I'll put a question in the, in the chat, Sam. Um, just everybody's um, talked about uh, your athletes um, developing as contingent upon effective peer learning. What's your role uh, as a coach in developing athletes as co-coaches or effective peer mentors, essentially? For us, in, in my team currently working, it's the agreement to, to share, to share everything. And that's, that's the thing of not keep, um, not keep secrets. So, you know, whether that be for us, it's, you know, it's a lot of what we're doing now is equipment focused. So a lot of it's settings, you know, how we're setting up for stuff, how we're doing stuff, but then techniques always evolving. And so we're in a new, cause we're in a new thing. Like we're, we're doing things differently, you know, to two months ago, three months ago, some people, someone will just click onto it and then everyone else will try and run with that. So it's the idea of, you know, whoever just makes that little leap, share that with the group, they'll have a bit of a go at it. Someone will do it slightly better. Let's do that again. Let's keep doing that. But it, the, the challenge is to try and keep that, that sharing going as long as possible. But I know there will come a stage where they'll probably have to stop for themselves, but it's trying to keep that going as long as, long as we can. I have a question um, that I'm going to throw Ben's way. It sits around the, the risk, managing risk. And a mutual friend of ours, Leslie, was on the call recently, or she was interviewed recently, and she spoke about um, often freestyle snow sports there's a misunderstanding in that we just continually see videos of people throwing themselves off of just enormous jumps and it looks uh, you know sort of blase in a way and uh, and she she discussed how between the coaches and the athletes and everyone that process is managed really carefully the risk involved in that is managed really carefully um, and, and in a sport where you have a subjective scoring system and the progression of skills is so valued, you know, you were discussing earlier the fist pumping and, and I'm not suggesting showing off, but you're supporting people to try things that have never been done before. So you're exploring human potential within your sport. And, you know, as a coach, how do you, how do you help manage that process? And there's huge risks involved in that both within the progression and that you know in, in terms of injury how do you how do you help manage that Ben? yeah definitely is like uh 
Like I think if you ask most riders, that they probably are quite frustrated by that that uh, misperception that they're just you know risk takers and and just giving it a giving it a go whenever. But they're actually probably the most calculated people I know. Um, on the whole, of course, is a a variety. You'll have some that are a little bit more willing to test and try, and others who maybe take their time a little bit longer. But you know, certainly every single one of them, if they're successful and they get to a high level where they're performing these tricks that might be only done by a, a few people in the world or indeed be brand new, um, they're very calculated and they've gotten there in quite a long, drawn-out process. Um, in terms of our role as a coach in that process, I, like again, I, I hear in what Sam's saying a lot of similarity in the sense that we do work as a team. It's it's like this other misperception is that it's such an individual sport, but it's such an important thing to do as a group of peers. Um, and we certainly try and encourage dis- discussion, dissection of the, the technical model, um, whether that be at the top of the course whilst people are training or of an evening when we're back in the apartment looking at video. Um, but yes, there is a point always, no matter how much build up and um, and practice of say the base skill before the new trick there is that moment always where the athlete obviously just has to press that button and go right I'm going to try this um, and as a coach that's I guess not equally scary because you're not putting your own body on the line but you certainly feel a lot of that anxiety as well um, and, and that's really I don't see how we can avoid being in that position where if it is something new for that person there is that moment where you just have to let go and give it a shot. Um, we can do all we can to get ready for that, but but we have to we have to go over the cliff at one point. Um, which is, I think, really as a coach, um, and I'm sure as a writer too, kind of why we're all, you know, so in love with it is that getting to that build up and to that sensation of trying something new is really what it's all about for us. It's that it's back to that progression and creativity. Thank you. What a lovely answer. Thank you, Ben. I want to go snowboarding now. <laughs> I've never done it before, but I want to go. <laughs> um, I'm well, just Helene's like... got... Sorry, Helene and Edinburgh's got a brand new jump, so it's, it's waiting for you. I'm just looking at time, and it would be nice to say a, a quick goodbye, everybody, before we, before we finish at half three. So I'm going to move towards the wrap-up question, which was intended to be a quick-fire round, but... Um, it doesn't have to be a quick response, and I, and for transparency, I'm particularly interested in Rihanna's, Rihanna's perspective here, given given your role with Skatistan and 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 Good Push and the transition that skateboarding is is going through as well in terms of the Olympic structure. So, and um, I'm gonna just pull up my question. Uh, so, it's kind of become a bit of a tradition now on this podcast that we end with a quick fire. Um, so here we go. Each of you are involved in sports that are rapidly progressing, both in terms of advancing equipment, uh, progression of tricks and transitions into the Olympic structure. What do you envisage us witnessing in the coming years that we've not yet seen? And in your opinion, is this good for the sport? Yeah, so I think that something that's definitely uh, happening in skateboarding that's gonna continue to happen uh, is basically greater diversity and inclusion in skateboarding. So that's uh, shifting away from this uh, pretty male dominated and Western sport to something where you see a lot more women, um, non-binary people, people of color, people coming from, you know, countries all around the world for a long time. Skateboarding was really focused in Southern California. And I think that that's shifting 
especially with the Olympics, obviously. I mean, that's been a huge push for women's skateboarding, I think. Um, and it's been a huge push for countries that haven't really had skateboarding as a sport yet. Um, it's pushing these countries to start thinking about it. There's, there's tons of places that don't even have a single skate park. They don't have anywhere you can buy a skateboard. And being in the Olympics, as much as there's this sector of skateboarding that's like very against it and doesn't understand it and they have no interest in it, I think it is a really good thing for global skateboarding. And I think it will help, you know, these emerging skateboarding communities around the world to be seen as legitimate by governments, get some investment uh, into infrastructure for skateboarding. Um, and I, it's really kind of cool with what we do, the Good Push Alliance, because a lot of times these small skateboarding projects are kind of the first instance of skateboarding in the countries. and they end up being like the point of contact for the Olympics because they're the first skaters there. So it's really cool to see that, see that shift happening. Um, and yeah, so I think there'll be really big benefits and, um, you know, I guess the criticisms that people see with the Olympics is, you know, maybe is it going to like kill the soul of skateboarding or the creativity of it or something like that. But I think that's really a great thing about skateboarding. We talked about at the start, is it a sport? Um, some people think it is for sure. Other people think of it as, you know, more just like a way of life or whatever. And it's up to each person to decide. And I think that it doesn't hurt to have more skateboarders around the world, seeing it however they want to see it. So, yeah. Thank you very much. Over to Sam. Thanks for us. Um, it's going to become an equipment war, basically. It's <laughs> what's going to happen. So, uh, yeah, we're gonna have to get. Um, I don't know. Next few years, there's there's an element of you know beyond beyond. You know, we, we, this is mostly we talk about skills acquisition. There will come a stage where ev everybody is good. Um, at, at which stage we'll kind of will be more in the marginal gains aspect, and then that will be who's who's got the best scientists or you know who's who's worked out the best stuff. Um, is that good for the sport? It's probably quite good for us. But um, is it good for the wider sport? But I don't know. It's tricky. But you know, we you know we work. Everyone has to use the same equipment. It's just working out how to make that equipment go go the fastest and go the best. So it does. It's, it it makes it interesting, but it does make it um, harder for everyone to compete on a a totally level playing field, um, which is is probably you know, not as easy. But we're all we are all still you know, encapsulated by the rules in which we're allowed to operate. So you, you, can't, you can't do anything untoward, but it's just who, who can do the best job of making stuff go quick, I think. And, and just briefly to add there, I know we're running out of time, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I have the real privilege of working with some of the windsurfing coaches and hearing them discuss the challenge now of supporting individuals to shift to foiling when they themselves never did that as a junior, as an under 15 or as an under 18. And that's just mind-boggling uh yeah really interesting ben okay i <clears throat> i'll try to be short i think um something i want to see and this wasn't necessarily the question but something i'd like to see and i know a lot of people i work with would like to see is that we continue to learn from skateboarding because that's ultimately where you know most of snowboarding's background has come from skateboarding and surfing um in the sense of what rhiannon's talked about there and and the various projects that she's involved with and that's that we can actually bring snowboarding to a bigger audience um, Yes, there's the argument that the environment is slightly harder to bring across the world. Um, but actually, even within the UK, looking at the different dry slopes or indoor snow domes, 
um, you know, that, that does show that it is possible to bring it from, you know, the Alpine uh, traditional sort of uh, normal environment to, to various other places. And actually we're starting to see um, small parks, almost like skate parks set up in various kind of cold climates where there's no lift, there's no charge. People can just turn up, have a snowboard, have a set of skis uh, and get involved. So that's something we definitely want to, you know, encourage and, and see happen more. Um, and then in terms of the progression of the sport, I mean, the whole thing has always been based on progression. Uh, yes, there's the argument or the, the fear, I think, from some in the community or the industry that um, surely we're getting close to the, the limits of, uh, you know, what a human can do in a snowboard. Um, if we continue to spin more or flip more, you know, where on earth can that go? There has to be a point, right? But I think that brings us back to um, creativity within that progression. And, you know, simply that riders will have to then adjust what they're doing uh in order to be judged the best in any given contest uh, and i think actually the best thing about it is that not knowing is a good thing and that i think most snowboarders are comfortable with that and it keeps it pretty exciting Um, Rhiannon, Ben, Sam, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Uh, for those that may be new to the Coaching Discourse podcast, this is part A of B. So in part B, Anna, Derek and I will try and make sense of all the phenomenal stuff that's been shared today over a couple of craft beers. So if you've enjoyed this, please tune into that. Uh, Anna, Derek, anything you want to add before we depart? Just thanks. Just thank you. Um, I, I think, yeah, the, the nice thing about these podcasts is we always end up learning something by by the end. And um, I've had some lessons today. Anna, do you like the way I said that? Lessons is okay? Yep, lessons. Um, so I've had some lessons today from Rhiannon, and uh, Ben and, and Sam, mostly mostly to use somebody's first name and not their second name. But, uh, but yeah, we'll go from there. Thanks very much. I enjoyed our first sort of international, internationally spanning podcast. Um, it's quite cool to... Um, be able to connect with people in different countries doing really interesting things which I suppose before this year we might not have thought so much about doing so thanks